welcome to Supposedly. That's Jesse. Hi. And this is Rue. Hey. Um, so it's Thursday the 7th. We made it a week and the United States Capitol got taken over by domestic terrorists. That happened last night and we are still coming to grips with what happened. I don't know that there are even words to describe how appalled we are. Yeah, I mean, to say that I'm surprised is inaccurate because this is exactly what Donald Trump has been cultivating over the last four years, but it's a whole different thing to see it playing out right in front of your eyes. Absolutely. Um, You know, on Supposedly, we cover a lot of great things. We cover cryptids, paranormal hauntings, true crime, and so much more, but one of the things we also cover is history, and this is such a historically defining moment for our nation. I don't think that any of us are going to look back on what happened yesterday and not have it be one of those moments where it's like, where were you when? Um, and so if it, you can, check your privilege. It would be remiss of us not to mention this today. Absolutely. And, you know, this, like I said, this really is a, a privilege-defining moment. If this isn't bothering you, that's something to really examine because there are a lot of people who are very deeply afraid right now. We've got Confederate flags flying inside the Capitol building which is something that didn't even happen during the Civil War. We've got people erecting nooses. I mean, this is completely unprecedented and is inciting so much fear and heartbreak for so many people. I don't even know where we begin to start, but I was absolutely 100% appalled by this. And I'm appalled even more by the people of our own race who equate this to Black Lives Matter protests. That is not even remotely in the same wheelhouse because we're talking about a group of people who have been oppressed, who have been um, discriminated against, who are fighting for their basic rights in their lives. They're not storming the Capitol building and being dangerous, and on top of that, doing it because they didn't get their way. Mm -hmm. What we're seeing is people who've never been told no before in their lives grappling with how to deal with losing. And they're doing it in a way that is not anything that America is supposed to stand for. And it's, it's sickening to watch and... It's scary. And for a lot of people that we love, it's especially scary. You know, Jesse and I are, we come from a place of privilege being white women and supposedly will always stand in solidarity with our supposers of color and our supposers who are queer or anyone who does not experience the privilege that straight white men get in our country. And for a lot of those groups right now, this is really, really bad, you guys. And we just want to say to our listeners of color, we will always stand with you. We are always trying to find new ways to be better accomplices and to hold ourselves and each other accountable. And to our white listeners, yo, it's time to use that privilege and get out there. Step up. And, Step up. You know, let your voice be known that we're not going to tolerate this from the people who look like us. Absolutely. Um, Rue has an amazing Facebook group where she provides information for allies. Um, Rue, will you tell us where we can find that information? It's it's definitely enriched my life to be a better ally. Well, thank you. Um, so it's a group on Facebook called What Can I Do? And I started it back in June during the wake of the Black Lives Matter 
um, protests and demonstrations after the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, especially um, as a way to lift some of the burden of emotional labor off of people of color and to encourage white people who want to be good accomplices and allies to take on some of the burden of self-edifying and um, using the resources that we already have that people of color and black people in particular have created um, so that, you know, we're not asking our black friends who are already barely keeping themselves upright in, in times like this, you know, hey, hey, what can I do? Man, we admire your strength in doing so. Yep. And so I created this as a resource for us to to bear that weight so that the people who we love who are suffering, especially right now, don't have to. And there are some questions you have to answer just to try and keep the trolls out, because obviously in a group like this, there are people out there who want to jeopardize the environment that I'm trying to create. But you just answer those questions and we're happy to have you in the community. So while we have a coup in the White House, and I can't believe that I'm saying those words out loud and that they mean exactly what they mean, we are excited to share that we have a guest on supposedly tonight. We are joined by treasure hunter extraordinaire Christian B. Roper. Yeah, uh, Christian is an avid treasure hunter currently in pursuit of the lost treasure of Jean Lafitte. In addition to that, he's a filmmaker in production on a documentary called Sunken Silver that talks about Jean Lafitte's lost treasure. Um, he's an avid diver and just kind of fun guy to talk to in general, paranormal enthusiast too. So welcome, Christian. Hi. Hey. I'm super excited to be here. I think this is the podcast interview that I've most, uh, looked forward to. Oh, thank you so much. That means a lot to us. Um, Christian has also been featured recently on Beyond Oak Island. Uh, you might know of Oak Island as being kind of, um, a treasure hunting show documentary on history network, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really cool experience. Yeah, so would you mind telling us a little bit about Jean Lafitte as a person? Sure. I think the the illustration that I give most people about Lafitte is that there are two realities when it comes to, to Jean Lafitte. And you will have people arguing for, for both sides. Um, one is the Lafitte of fact, the other is the Lafitte of folklore. But in the middle, um, there are stories of him potentially being involved with these various treasure legends based on things that we know he, that he did during his life. Um, most people would associate him with the city of New Orleans. He was considered a war hero, an American war hero. Um, he helped avoid uh, British capture of New Orleans by utilizing the pirates working under him and uh, their big stockpile of, of artillery and, and cannons to help uh, keep away the, the pesky British sailors from, from sneaking into New Orleans. And after that, he uh, ends up getting in trouble. He was given a presidential pardon, and they were given land in Louisiana. After this, he gets in trouble again by yet again affecting the American economy. And he's forced west, and he reclaims uh, this island in Texas. Today, it's known as Galveston Island. Uh, it, it went by many names during Lafitte's time, including Serpent Island. That's my favorite of the names. <laughs> uh, and uh, for about five years, he was stationed there. And he continued piracy, but a lot of people don't realize just how much piracy was going on on the Texas coast in the early 1800s. And this few short years, once again, I mentioned in the show, but piracy was short-lived. You know, Blackbeard was only active for two to three years, um, but during that time, they get so much infamy that for the next two, three hundred years, four hundred years sometimes, there are so many stories attached to this person. Now, not all of those can be true, but there was so much 
crime and uh, just wanting the, the pirate life and the pirate lore to continue that stories come of that. And so that's kind of what I've been looking into these last few years um, with my documentary. There was a lake that I grew up around and it was associated with Lafitte and that was my entry to Lafitte. Now I live about 200 miles from the coast and Lafitte was one of the few pirates that had connections that far inland. So he was not only known for patrolling the Gulf, but um, almost every Texas waterway hundreds of miles inland is also associated with, with piracy. And it's just a, a weird web of, of history and, and lore. Um, but Lafitte was very much a pirate. Um, I had mentioned to Jesse that it's kind of not telling the entire story if you only mention him as a pirate. He was very much involved in the slave trade as well. That's where the money was. Okay, yeah. And, and Lafitte was an opportunist. And so when the money was in the slave trade, he found a way to get money out of that. And a lot of times he would capture Spanish slave ships and resell these slaves in Texas. And there was a, a strip between Texas and Louisiana that was referred to as no man's land. And this was a really popular spot for him to sneak slaves inland and resell them to, to farmers and um, to landowners both in Texas and Louisiana. Wow. Yeah, there there are a lot of stories about slave barracks being left behind. There's that's that's the kind of Lafitte of fact that that is mentioned um, in history, and the Lafitte of folklore is all the treasure stories that have come out of that, and uh, the, the stories of Spanish galleons being attacked and and things like that. And somewhere in the middle, there's still a lot of truth yet to be found, and that's what I'm really interested in is finding that pocket on where those two converge. Yeah, so I find with any historical figure, you're going to have those legends, those those things that just tend to get passed down over the generations and the ages. Um, and then we have what we can back up and verify via historical documents and things like that. So I think you're right in saying that there's this little pocket for everyone that is what the truth is. Yeah. Um. So I guess before we jump in anymore, I totally forgot I was going to start a new segment. What's making you happy this this week. Yeah, it's been a tough week. Christian, do you want to go first? I know we're kind of putting you on the spot and a hard question to ask in this first week of 2021, but is there anything exciting that's happened? Uh, hmm. I think what's made me happiest in 2021 so far is that I've been able to convince, uh, I think, two or three people so far to look into diving. I don't know if they'll go through with it, but I was able to convince a few people to, to look into that for their resolution and, and skill to pick up in 2021. So I, I think that's what's making me happy this week. That's awesome. So Rue, what's making you happy this week? Um, we're still super locked down here in Germany, so I haven't gotten to do too terribly much. Um, but yeah, just working on the podcast is super exciting to me with our website launching this last week. And I'm excited. I, I yeah, yeah a lot of big I'm optimistic, I will say that 2021 hasn't sapped that out of me yet. What about you, Jess? Uh, well, for me, I've been rocking that necklace you sent me for Aww. Christmas, and I really love it. Yeah, you can't see it, but Ruth sent me a necklace that has some numbers on it, and the numbers actually link to um, the catalog numbers for the Hope Diamond, so. Yeah, that's sweet. How long have you been diving now? Uh, I grew up around it. In the episode, it was true that I grew up uh, with two parents that were both dive instructors, and they were dive guides in in eastern Mexico and I just grew up around it um I wasn't very involved with it until the last couple of years I preferred free diving which is just okay. diving without the equipment you dive on breath hold that's what I liked mm -hmm. um until I started looking into the story about pirate treasure in this lake and knew that people had been diving that lake before and so I said I need to put myself in that position 
So that's what the last year has been, just diving this lake. Wow. I mean, I know I was definitely this kid. And you growing up around divers, were you the kind of kid who would, you know, oh, can I find sunken treasure here when you were like out playing and swimming in the summers? Yeah, I, w- I was very much obsessed with with the ocean and all the stories that came with it. Um, I guess the pirate obsession came much later. Um, but I, my parents introduced me to divers from many different countries, and they all told me their their theories and their stories. And that was part of how I heard about this legend in Texas was through a diver that my friends were that my uh, parents were friends with. Okay, and I I just kind of was immersed in the the maritime lore and all the stories of ghost ships and and sunken treasure and everything and I just never grew out of it so I still have all of those stories I still love uh, the ocean and all the mysteries that it has and all the mysteries that it brought inland right so Christian is there more about Lafitte that you wanted to tell us or should we get into some of your spooky tales I know Jesse shared a couple of your findings with me and I'm super curious about uh I, I can give you a few of the stories that I love about Luffy. Okay, yeah. Uh, one is that, first and foremost, he, he's probably the pirate that's most associated with the paranormal. Okay. And and part of that comes from his upbringing in New Orleans and associations with voodoo. Right. And just the evilness that's kind of associated with his character and in, in the slave trade and the haunted stories of Galveston Island and having that associated with him. And that, that's kind of what got me into uh, the the documentary that I'm working on right now was hearing the paranormal stories about the lake and associations with curses. And everyone in East Texas has some story, has some family retelling of a Lafitte treasure that is guarded by a ghost or guarded by ghosts of, of his men, something like that. It's very common to find that in, in Cajun folklore as well. Huh. Yeah. Uh, th- this Lafitte association with ghosts. But one of my favorite stories with him is when he was considered a threat to the American economy and the governor of Louisiana at the time, William Claiborne, ends up putting a bounty on his head. And I believe the bounty was worth $500. And when Lafitte finds this out, he decides to put a bounty on the governor's head and he raises the price. Oh. And he was a uh, just an intimidating guy. Um, but a lot of reports that talk about him talk about how charming he was. He was known as the Merchant Prince. It's kind of an alluring character, and mm-hmm. he was, I would consider him the last of the great pirates. He was almost 200 years past kind of the golden age of piracy. Wow, And he didn't okay. necessarily capitalize on what you think of as normal piracy, which is raiding ships, taking silver and gold. Now, he no doubt stockpiled a lot of that stuff mm-hmm. just by nature of the Spanish transporting it, but it was not the amount that they were in the early 1600s, late 1500s. His money was being made in, in stolen goods and stolen slaves and reselling those. Right. And there are still stories of him and his men saying, we have so much wealth, we need to go out and bury this. I personally don't believe in a lot of those legends, but that's kind of the lore that, that came from him and his, his men on this uh, island of Galveston. And uh, another story that I love is that uh, it also involves the Battle of New Orleans, but he was in between... Fighting for for the American and the British, he had no allegiance. And I mentioned this on on Beyond Oak Island, how pirates didn't necessarily have an allegiance to a country. A lot of times, if they were privateering and and fighting under the flag of another country, that was 
only to keep them out of trouble. They had no allegiance to that country whatsoever. A lot of the men were were extremely multicultural, did not... For example, we don't even know for sure where Lafitte was born. We don't know his national allegiances, if he had any. There's just so much mystery surrounding him. There's so much mystery surrounding his death. Okay. We do know he has he had a brother as well, right, who was also a pirate. He did. Uh, Pierre does not get anywhere near as much credit. There are also a few Lafitte relatives that we are aware of. I've got a document from a Lafitte relative or a copy of it, which talks about every single ship and every single man that worked under him until you get to the very end. And there's a paragraph at the end that says he wrote it down about 20 years after Lafitte had had, uh, left the island, but he he wrote everything down. And at the very end of, of the record of ships that Lafitte took, he says... Sorry, this isn't even everything. I, like, wow, we don't have space to write everything. Yeah. So there's still more mystery to that, and we have good records, but we don't have everything. So tell me more about the treasure and kind of where that comes into play. Um, and in Beyond Oak Island, what was your goal? Yeah. Um. So so the story that I'm most familiar with is the story of what's called the Hendrix Lake Treasure. And the Hendrix Lake Treasure story begins in the early 1880s with this guy named Paul Tatum. Paul Tatum was so convinced there was treasure in this lake that he attempts to uh, make this machine that would drain the lake with a conveyor belt and buckets. He would drain the lake one bucket at a time. Oh, that sounds tedious. That sounds terrible. Yeah. It did not work out too well. Surprise. And he was kind of called a fool by one of his neighbors. He ended up getting in an argument with his neighbor, and he clubbed that neighbor to death. Oh! Oh! And Man, that you really just like took us on a twist there. And then he <laughs> murdered him. Oh, okay. And then he was dead. Oh. <laughs> what do you think of my buckets now? Yeah. What was on his bucket list? Uh. Okay, I couldn't, you know. <laughs> when I heard that, I was immediately drawn to the story. I had heard of it as a kid, but it was just vague. People looked in the past for this pirate treasure in this lake, mm-hmm. did not know where it came from, who it was associated with. I just knew there was some connection with East Texas and pirate treasure. And the, the beginnings happened in about 1884. And when we heard that Paul Tatum had actually murdered someone over this treasure, you know, that's all you need oh, for yeah. a good story. Every good treasure legend has to have a murder in it somewhere, right? And the, the legend talks about, or the, there are several different versions, but the main, uh, the main telling of this legend mentions Lafitte capturing the Spanish ship called the Santa Rosa in 1816. Okay. And taking in about $2 million of silver ingots. And he gives them to a smuggler. And there was this uh, this, uh, smuggling trail by the name of Trammell's Trace. He gives it to the smuggler named Nicholas Trammell. And at some point in Spanish Texas, the uh, Spanish had caught up. And Nicholas Trammell says, we need to dump these wagons of silver into the lake. That's the main version of the story. There are a lot that are very similar in the area. But that was the basis that, that people had to start searching this lake. And uh, in the 1950s, there were several pretty well-funded and, and really nice technology. Um, they, they had actually attempted to search, and they had found a few wagon pieces that made the story very interesting. And it was not a story of the world's best treasure hunters coming. It was not. It was kind of the opposite of, of what the Oak Island story was. It was, a lot of times, it was people from the next town over that had figured out how to build their own metal detector. And so it was a story of all these locals that had somehow... Sorry, I'm just Googling how to build your own metal detector. (laughs) (laughs) It was a story of all these locals that had somehow come to believe that there was pirate treasure in this lake. And so 200 miles from the coast, you see the irony in people looking for pirate treasure. And uh, that's what initially drew me to it, was trying to tell their story. And then we took it one step further, 
when when Beyond said, "Hey, have you ever thought about searching for this?" And I thought that was a no brainer. Well, yeah. I mean, who's just going to call you up and be like, hey, have you ever thought about searching for this pirate treasure that you've been researching for forever? I think that'd be a hard yes for me, Rue. Yeah, that's got to be like, uh, you don't even let them finish the sentence, right? Yeah, like, how do you play it cool when someone calls you up and is will give you the opportunity to search for this treasure? Yeah, I would have zero chill. <laughs> let me let me talk to... No, it's just immediately. Was that your experience? Or, I mean, how did how did coming to that happen for you? Well, when they contacted me, I had no clue what the, I guess, scope and the scale of the show would be. Okay. I was under the impression that it would be like filmed over Skype or Zoom, something like that. And I would be about 30 seconds of some show that would be mentioning Lafitte. And they said, hey, we're looking for these Lafitte stories. Yeah. I thought I was going to be in the show for about 30 seconds. Then everything goes into lockdown. Oh, okay. Yep. And my assumption was that, okay, they scrapped the show. That would have been kind of cool, right. but uh, you know, I don't, I don't understand uh, where it can go from here. Yeah. Then when when restrictions were loosened just a tad bit, I get a phone call and they said, "How soon can you get on a plane?" And so, kind of out of nowhere, I had gone from assuming I would do some sort of internet mm-hmm. call for maybe fifteen minutes and thirty seconds of it would be used to we want to fly you to set and and have you actually star in this episode and talk about these different pirates. And so I was like, oh, that's such a cool experience. Yeah. At the time, I still did not know that they had wanted to come to Hendrix Lake. And as I had left that, that I get more calls and they just say, hey, we're coming. And they ended up getting all the filming permissions they needed. And uh, I, I thought it was a no-brainer when I'm trying to do this documentary, trying to tell the story. And then I think it premiered to, I think, 1.8 million people. Wow, that's pretty cool. nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Is for if you haven't seen Beyond Oak Island, I'm just gonna say this for Rue's benefit because she is in Germany and I don't know if you've seen it or not. Uh, so basically, in the episode, they have Christian on. Uh, he tells them a little bit about Lafitte, and then they pursue this sunken treasure that supposedly, <laughs> supposedly, I'm sorry, I know I do that a lot on this podcast. Supposedly, um, was dumped in wagons into Hendricks Lake. So Christian and a team go on some dives and explore Hendricks Lake and see what they can find. And I, do you want to allude to maybe what you found? Or do we want people to, to watch that episode? Uh, people can watch the episode, but ultimately it's TV. So I can say that since it's not major headlines, we didn't find a pirate treasure. <laughs> well, we're, we're big fans of ghost adventures and they don't ever find anything and we still watch. So definitely still check out the show. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I love ghost adventures too. Oh, we, our favorite is Zach Baggins because we just love to not love him because he's... That's a huge part of how supposedly got started. So it's exciting to share that, that love of trash with you. Um. So with... Speaking of paranormal, I know Hendrix Lake, you had just mentioned, has some paranormal ties that you were interested in as well. Yeah. Um, I had been on a couple of paranormal podcasts before talking about my personal experiences. Okay. But I'd never mentioned the lake. And in, in one of those, I was talking after I'd recorded with someone and they said, you know, what are you working on right now? And I was talking about Hendrix Lake. And they said, oh, why didn't you mention that? And I said, oh, there's nothing paranormal about it other than, you know, a murder and people thought it was cursed and... <laughs> <laughs> you know, there were rumors that they found bones. and Oh, is that all? Yeah, and then all these strange things happen. And, and one of the crews nearly died in like 15 different ways. And oh. it then occurred to me that I was like, oh, man, this is such a nice selling point. And then they said, oh, we've also yeah. um, interviewed a guy 
who believes he's Jean Lafitte reincarnated or believes that there's something to DNA memory and he's related to Jean Lafitte. Huh. And I would probably consider him the top Lafitte historian. And Real okay, so you feel like there's something so like behind that claim. He's legit, and then on top of that, he has this tie to either DNA memory or or mm-hmm. reincarnation. Wow. Yeah, so there's something called the Lafitte Society in Texas. And the backstory to that, um, one of the, one of the co-founders, um, his name is Jim Nonas, and we've got a wonderful relationship with him. He's one of my favorite people I've ever met, and he's extremely credible. He's he knows lots about Lafitte. He's one of those believers that Lafitte actually did get quite a bit involved in treasure and, and potentially um, storing things, burying things. Mm-hmm. But when he was a child, he had these recurring nightmares about being thrown into a tow sack and taken on board a a ship and being forced into piracy hmm. and he That's after intense. that he had since come across records that indicate that maybe how Lafitte became involved in piracy okay um, by force a lot of people were involved in piracy yeah. by force and he's had other strange visions of ports and villages hmm. and he thinks he can tell where it was and he says i think this is possibly the year um, he had wow. the strange visions i know one specifically he was walking on wooden planks that were sinking into the mud and he thought i think he was in eastern mexico hmm. and he's he's done all these regression sessions and he had all of it it was wiped out in i think hurricane ike That's such a shame so he oh, lost wow. all those tapes which i wish we had yeah. but he's he's awesome guy he had so many stories for us and it's just fun to believe that that maybe Somehow we were face to face with a pirate whose story we're trying to tell. Right. I think reincarnation is really fun to to look into. I don't know if there's anything with DNA memory. He personally thinks it's more along the lines of DNA memory. Okay. We did a whole episode um, where I talked about reincarnation. I think that might have been our seventh or eighth episode. It's it's early on if you want to go find that. But one of the things we covered that uh, is a theory is that. Um, when you're reincarnated, you're reincarnated through your family line, mm-hmm. through the same family line, which is interesting. So do you know if he has any DNA ties directly to Jean Lafitte? No, what he told us was that he had initially thought that his great-grandfather was Portuguese. Okay. And uh, that he had done some research, and that was incorrect. He said oh. he had sailed from Portugal, but his great-grandfather was French. Oh, wow. And so Lafitte was French. Uh, my family also has ties like that and then I, when i heard his story it i had never thought about reincarnation or dna memory or anything yeah. like that but i was when i was really young i had these nightmares about guillotines and i didn't really know what guillotines were mm-hmm. i just had this n- nightmare about a guillotine being face up and seeing this wooden guillotine like always coming down wow and then a couple of years ago i found out that my uh my family last name was actually not roper but it was changed about 100 years ago from from robespierre oh wow uh like maximilian yeah. robespierre who was the architect of the French Revolution. And so now I'm trying to do some research into seeing if that's a possible connection. Um, but yeah, I've, I've come across a few people with strange reincarnation ties and things like that. And I think it's just fun to to say what if. I think it's fine leaving things at what if. I think um, a lot of it is potentially explainable by what movies you consume without knowing as a kid or, or what you are told, what you um, just experience. But there's a lot of stories like that. And, and he linked me uh, to an article once, I think it had been done, Stanford maybe, but they had, had linked these uh, kids in this research mm-hmm. study who talked about past lives to traumatic deaths. Yeah. And a, a lot of it has to do with that. It, you rarely hear about 
you know, these reincarnation stories where they said, oh, yeah, it was just 40 years ago and I was an accountant. Right. It's, it's always, <laughs> you know, I was I used to be a Civil War soldier or something like that. Yeah. Um, maybe there's there's something mentally we don't know how to explain yet where we tend to pick up those stories and somehow our brain tricks us into thinking there's something to past lives. Or it could be just easily explained by saying, hey, there might be something too. Yeah reincarnation there's some sort of glitch mm-hmm. where you know we just recycle ourselves yeah right on so now christian i have since we're on the topic of past lives a question do you have any weird birthmarks that's it <laughs> <laughs> i've never been asked this on a podcast before um the first time <laughs> well there, it, there's a, there is yeah there's there's a reason I don't I don't think so. I think I did when I was really young. Okay. I vaguely remember my mom oh, talking where? about one. I think it was on my face. Oh, interesting. Um, so do you know where on your face? I I think it was on the side of my cheek. <gasps> I don't remember back then very well. Whoa. Okay. Okay. Right. So the reason that I asked you this super invasive personal question <laughs> is because Jesse and I discovered when we did our episode on past lives is that a lot of times these young people, these kids who have talked about experiencing past lives will often have a birthmark in the place where they sustain the injury that killed them in their past life. Oh. Hmm. <laughs> so I was like, maybe you have like a weird, you know, like spot on your neck and it's like, oh, you definitely got guillotined, my friend. Yeah, well, it's believed that, that Robespierre tried to commit suicide by shooting himself in the face and it failed. Interesting. And then he was guillotined. Oh wow! Okay. 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 And we got some DNA lineage there. I say you All need right. to you need to get yourself on Ancestry and start clicking those leaves, my friend. Yeah, that's. Yeah. Oh, we got to talk about the ghost photos because I've I've sent those through and. Yeah. So I think the one you're talking about was also related to Lafitte at, at Maison Rouge. Yeah. Okay. So Lafitte had this property on Galveston Island called Maison Rouge or or Red Mansion, um, Red House in French. And uh, it was destroyed in the hurricane of 1818, and then he rebuilt it. And then when he left Galveston, he torched everything, and it was destroyed again. And then it was rebuilt by someone later, and then destroyed in the hurricane of 1900. And then it was rebuilt and been destroyed. So not not the luckiest of houses. Galveston is full of, uh, you know, destruction, hurricanes, um, you know, a lot of people just associate it with evil and loss. That's, that's what's associated with the island. Mm. And Lafitte's at the middle of that. Well, wow. one of my... Old roommates had a friend that he lived with at the time. And uh, I was just mentioning Lafitte. And he said, yeah, I'm from a town right by Galveston. And he's like, we used to go to that property all the time. A lot of people will. It's like fenced off now to prevent people from just digging up what they think is treasure and everything. He's like, I don't know why he would just leave everything he owned like right by his steps. But, you know, people try to dig out there. But one of the things associated with my son Rouge is ghost stories. And particularly faces caught in photos. Mr. Nona said he had done a photo shoot out there, I believe, with Texas Highways magazine on Halloween, and he was dressed up as a pirate, and they took it in front of Maison Rouge, uh, where it had been rebuilt. And in one of the windows, they captured a figure behind him, and they call him later, and they say, you're not the only pirate in the photo. And they mm-hmm. said, we can't publish this, because you know we don't, we don't have a way to explain this. I, see, I think that is 
just a mistake oh, on yeah. their part. If they're if they're doing this photo shoot on Halloween, why wouldn't you run with that? Right. Hey, by the way, we were taking some photos and this popped off. It just seems like a good good way to go. Yeah, so they, they captured these these shoulders and this head that looked like a pirate in the window. And then I was with a, I was with my old roommate, um, staying at his house and, and one of his roommates at the time said, Oh yeah, yeah. We were just kind of talking about Galveston and he said, We used to go out to that property. Um when I was in high school, my friends and I went out to that property and we just started taking random photos. And then when we were leaving, we were driving away in the car and we zoomed in on one and like as clear as a ghost photo can get, there's a face in the top right corner. It's so clear. And so he was like, we were freaking out. And I was like, is this, uh, you know, is there something to this? Could this be his face? Whose face is this? We showed it to Mr. Nonis and he said, oh yeah. Um, it looks like a woman to me. One of my friends is a medium, and she said there's a woman named Palmetta uh, hmm. that was killed in one of those hurricanes that's buried on the property. Interesting. Mm-hmm. See, I've seen the picture, and I think it looks like Lafitte. When you look at that portrait, the standard portrait, whenever you Google Lafitte, first thing that pops up on Google Images, I feel like that's him. It looks like him. Maybe. I don't know if it will make our documentary, but it's, it's certainly such a good side story. And uh, we kind of want to go out there one day and and see if we can pick something up you know actually the reason i got into Mm -hmm. filmmaking and cameras in general was my ghost stories that i had as a kid and the reason i i asked my parents for a digital camera when i was very young was because i wanted to get orbs and ghosts on photo um did anything kind of spike that or did you just read about ghosts and orbs and were like oh i want to take a picture of this so i didn't know what a ghost was when i was about four years old i had no clue um but I was I was with my parents at my aunt's home, and she had recently moved in, and everyone was in the living room. I had to go to the restroom, something like that. So I walked down the hall, and at the time, it was built before indoor plumbing, so they had to add an addition to the house and, and put the restroom in that way. And there was a well that used to be an outdoor well that was in their restroom, laundry room, whatever it was. And I don't remember a lot of this. A lot of this has been pieced together by what I told them then and my family has kept up with the stories. I was so young that I don't have the visual memories really. Um, but there was a man in that room and he had somehow convinced me to come in and uh, it, I described him at the time as being like off. Even at four years old, I thought something was off about him. He had this oh, wow. red unkept hair and uh, this really red nose and I thought he was a clown. And so... <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm talking to him and he's saying something to me and I told them that he had squatted down and put his hand on my shoulder so there was physical contact made and uh, then I, I guess I'm in the doorway my aunt asked me who I'm talking to I do not remember what he says at all I don't know what I said to him don't mm-hmm. know how much communication was made there but I turn to my aunt and I, I say the clown wants to talk to you and she freaks out because she knows there's no one else in the house so Everyone freaks out and they say, check the house. They thought, they thought someone had snuck in. Okay. And uh, yeah, don't remember what he said. Don't remember anything that happened in the room. Do you remember if you felt the touch or not? You said he put his hand on your shoulder. Do you remember feeling any sort of physical contact? I assume I did because that is what I told my parents. <laughs> was that the man touched me on the shoulder. Oh, in like creepy little kid voice. Right, because you, otherwise you would have led with some guy touched me on the shoulder and I didn't feel it at all. It was mm-hmm. weird. Yeah, I, I just said, the clown wants to speak with you or something like that. She freaks out. And I think her kids had been 
reporting. Yeah, her her kids had been saying they had heard stuff and they have stuff missing from that house. I mean, it's always male objects like shot glasses, razors, um, knives, things like that. Things that kind of uh, like an old man would would use. Uh-huh. Hmm. That's interesting. We've we've had a lot of stuff kind of go missing recently. And hmm. kind of when things have popped up and escalated around here, which I've talked to you a little bit about, and Rue's well caught up on what's happening. Um, so that's that's interesting that they had that experience too. I never really kind of linked the two together. Mm-hmm. There was a second time where I was, wa- she caught me, my aunt, I was over and she caught me crawling up into the attic. And I said, the clown's up there. Like you do. Yeah. And she said, no. Um, and then I don't think uh-huh. I have any other stories from that house after that, except... Um, I guess there was a photo left from the previous owner of a group of men. And I picked out a man and said, that's the clown. Oh, and it was the previous owner of the house that they were friends with through their church. And he had passed away in the home. Wow. And had, I had no clue who that was. Didn't, I mean, it's, it's hard to explain when mm-hmm. kids say things like that when they don't know. What's your favorite cryptid? Oh, my favorite cryptid. This is something I want to ask anyone who comes on the show. Uh, I, I really like the stories of, of sea serpents. That's what I was obsessed with with a kid, the kid. And then the the Sasquatch stuff happened to us. And then... Okay, Hold on, you, you can't say, just... You, yeah, yeah, you can't no, just we're drop... Gonna pause. <laughs> Rue, can I, can I get that rewinding noise you do? All right, so back to the Sasquatch stuff happened to us. Yeah, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Uh. <laughs> yeah, I'll get there. So, so the the ghost story happened to me when I was four. Okay. And then right after that, I had a newborn sister, and she she described this at the time. She could talk at the time, okay. and we were both in the back seat, and my mother was driving. Well, our grandfather that had passed away within like a year of this happening. I, I don't know how to describe it, but somehow we had both described to our mom, or she didn't have the vocabulary for it, but I had described to our mom that somehow our grandfather had like materialized between us in the back seat oh, wow. and he was holding her hand. And that's why she was screaming during this car ride. And my mom had also seen her deceased relatives, like one, she saw, I think she saw either her grandmother or her great grandmother. I think it was possibly, I think it was her grandmother. Um, but it was over an old dresser that had been passed down to her where there was all this jewelry on top of it. And so when you said you saw someone by your dresser, yeah. that was immediately what I thought of. I think it's the Titanic guy, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. My family has a million attachments to, to everything weird. Those two things happened. The, the, my mom's dad, uh, the same one we had supposedly seen in the back of this car, I don't remember anything about it. I know that convinced my dad that ghosts were real. Um. He was not a believer until then. And uh, my grandfather was also on this military operation called Operation High Jump in 1947, where the U.S. sent 5,000 soldiers to Antarctica. And the official reasoning for doing that was to test equipment in, in freezing conditions, but there's a lot of UFO lore associated with it. Okay. And I think there was actually something to them looking into the idea that there was a Nazi base where there were officials hiding in Antarctica. Interesting. So he was the, the chief expedition medic on that. Wow. And uh, Story idea. My family has an association with that. And then the Sasquatch stuff happened. Then, yeah. And then the Sasquatch. Okay, yeah, 
Yeah, you gonna tell us about the Sasquatch stuff? Yeah. Um, this was another thing that inspired me to pick up cameras. It was the weird events that happened. And I said, I really want to have a camera to try to take these photos. And I'm trying to write a book about it right now. All this weird stuff happened to my family when, when I was really young. And then all of a sudden that got me interested in cameras. And then I started doing film stuff. And then I ended up on TV hunting pirate treasure. It was a weird progression. There you go. But somehow I've done everything so far. Still have yet to see a, a like a true UFO. But I'm still holding out hope. There's time. Maybe you need to go up to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. I was obsessed with, with sea monsters and everything at the time. Yeah. I uh, had all the books on Nessie, had all the books on Champ. Nessie's my homegirl. And uh, <laughs> my dad was kind of one of the big believers that there were still large sharks out there. I won't say like Megalodon, but there were still, he was very interested in the Sea of Cortez where there were sightings of um, these really big black sharks. And so I, I got interested in marine cryptozoology. And then that gets you watching all the TV shows where they include everything. It goes from Nessie to Bigfoot to everything. And that was my introduction to Bigfoot was seeing the Patterson Gimlin film on TV. And in one of those, you know, it was like late night. Uh, news segments where it was, you know, here's everything weird in the world. I was going to say, yeah, your childhood and stuff. mine sound identical. So basically just what I watch every Tuesday night. Yeah. Yeah. That's just like... <laughs> yeah. Your childhood and my adult adulthood sound identical. <laughs> yeah. And I didn't know the extent to which Sasquatch sightings occurred in East Texas, where I'm from. Yeah. I, from TV, you know, it's always California, Washington, Oregon. I was like, oh, yeah, these things probably exist, but they're way out there. Well, my mom, one of her coworkers, said, I, I, heard, I hear you're really interested in, in weird things. And I was like, yeah. And she was like, you guys should come out to my property sometime and let's go spotlighting for these things. And I thought she was crazy. Even yeah. 12 years old or whatever I was, I was like, this woman's crazy. There's nothing here. Um, and we pile in the back of her pickup truck. She had guns and knives. And you're like, 12. I was like, what the heck are we getting into? And we drive miles. Yeah, yeah, yeah just, uh, just, yeah, come to my property. I got something strange to show you. You like weird things, right? Get in my pickup truck. Here's some weaponry. To be honest, Christian, this sounds yeah. like the start of one of our true crime stories, not a cryptid story, so I'm very intrigued to see where this yeah. goes. Well, and then then he dropped the whole <laughs> killed the guy with the bucket when we were like, oh, it's historical, historical, and there's death. Okay. Yeah, my my... Uh, my family all goes up. My sister was young. She was a few years younger than me. And then my parents are there and we bring like lawn chairs. Okay. We're like, oh, we don't know what the heck is going to happen. We were thinking there was going to be like some zoo exhibit. I'm like, oh, you know, maybe. Tailgating for Bigfoot. <laughs> and so we, we go to this hay field and it's surrounded kind of on three sides by this forest. And it goes in a big C shape, the, the tree line. And we're surrounded on three sides by this forest tree line. And we're, we're qu quite a bit away from it, but we're close enough to where you could hear something if there was something right there in the tree line. I get out, and I'm on the right side of the truck, and, and the lady was on the right side of the truck. And we had this one spotlight. And she, like, whistled. And and she was like, just wait a few minutes, and, and they'll start watching us. Oh, I just got chills. <laughs> oh, oh! Do you know at this point what's supposed to be watching you, or are you just like, okay, yeah, sure, lady, here's my lawn chair. Uh, 
I had no clue. It was the summer. It was hot. I was okay. like, this is weird. I'd even at, at such a young age, my my mom was like friends with amateur ghost hunters. I had been to so many haunted houses, and like the the fear was bred out of me at a very young age. It, yeah, we were there, all four of us. My mom was on the left side and kind of away from everyone, which is something she did not tell us until later. She starts shining a spotlight. She she starts saying, "Do you see it?" She's like, "There's there's one." And okay, so I picture lawn chairs, and she. How big is the spotlight? I I need to know. I think it's just like a flashlight. No, it's it's like, like a up? it's like a hunting spotlight oh, okay, gotcha. where you can okay, immediately okay. illuminate whatever you want mm-hmm. to. Gotcha. Okay. From however far away, and she would say things like, "There's one. There's another one." Every few minutes, and she would just point out in between trees. And uh, at, th- at this point, I- I'm still like, this woman's crazy. Yeah. You're not seeing it at this point. She's like, there's one. And you're like, one No, I- I'm not. I'm not seeing anything. I- I'm not seeing anything. And like, I was like, this, like, wh- what are we doing? <laughs> this is weird. In my mind, for some reason, I was expecting them to walk out. And like, shake hands with you. And just be like, take, take your snacks, open up a beer from your dad, just walk off into the corner. Just like some big gorilla thing, walk out wave and then leave and i'm like oh well they're real um but she would point them out and then after a few minutes these really vague um almost like reflective lights but it was really vague would pop up in the tree line and it was high up and i'm i'm used to eye shine i've seen alligator eye shine at lakes i've seen you know raccoon deer whatever they've got different eye shine and so i'm like this is what we're seeing Uh but it was really vague and it was a red and the way that I've described it before is that I used to have this underwater watch that I had bought from like Walmart. Oh, so it kind of glows a little and bit. And it was like a reddish pink. Okay. And sometimes when the lights were out, um, like in the middle of the night, if I needed to check the time, uh-huh. it was backlit. And so I would press the light button and it would be backlit red, but it was very dim. Yeah. And so in my mind, that's what I related to. It was like hmm. there was a watch up in this tree and it was backlit. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't tell if there were like two. It was just like very vaguely red. And then I was like, okay, so there are raccoons in this tree. And she would shine a light on exactly that spot and there would be nothing there. At that point, I'm still like, you know, nothing's happening. Mm-hmm. It's weird. We kind of thought it, it kind of looked in, in your mind and eyes will play tricks on you at night. And so I'll never say that this is what happened. But a lot of us thought we were seeing trees shift or like... If there were two trees right here, one would, you know, it would all of a sudden converge oh. into one or like, it's like a tree would split into two and then go behind another one. Gotcha. So one tree would become true. Yeah. Shadows. Well, in the years since I've got really into tracking down reports and things like that, and a lot of people report like tree peeking. Uh-huh. And so where they'll hide behind trees and then peek out and jump from tree to tree. It's like it was. So you're thinking it's just mm-hmm. these critters moving between the trees but at the time i was like yeah at the time of him was like we didn't see anything we like there were weird lights like raccoons up there and it was it was like our eyes were playing tricks on us like the trees were going back and oh, forth man. and then 10 years later when i get into sasquatch again which it was mainly through studying uh like physical anthropology when i went to college um that i was like man did we have a class b sighting huh maybe like i i don't i don't know i i, I will never tell anyone that that's yeah. exactly what i saw I will just say that that's what she was telling us was okay. going on. Did she tell you anything else about like how she had known that they were out there or that they were Bigfoot or creatures yeah, like yeah. that? Yeah, yeah. 
that I'll get into that's like the <laughs> thing that's burned into my mind was what she said after. Um, and she, she, she didn't say anything else that night. Just like, yeah, they don't like to come out. Um, they don't like the truck mm-hmm. being around. They don't like other people being around. Um, if it's just her, she said they come out. But we were like, yeah, we don't believe you, lady. This is crazy. <laughs> and then years later, my mom was like, yeah, I think one stood up in the hayfield. Whoa. Um, she's like, a, hmm. she thought she was seeing a tree stump. And it was in the corner of her eye. And then she would look around. And then she would look around again. And the tree stump would be gone. Whoa. Or the, it, it would be gone. And then all of a sudden, there would be another tree stump somewhere else in this hayfield. Or what looked like a tree stump sticking out. And then... Ten years later, she's like, yeah, I never thought about why there would be a tree stump in a hayfield. Yeah. In the middle of a hayfield. Yeah, that would be really interesting. Uh, Did they have a lot of haystacks around? Because normally, I I do some work on a farm, and all of their hayfields are used to kind of lay out the hay, roll the hay up. So a haystack being in the middle that could damage farming equipment would be less than ideal. Yeah, there was no explanation for anything being that close to her. Um, And she never mentioned it that night because she never thought of it. And it wasn't until 10 years later that it was like, oh, yeah, yeah, I saw that. that. 2008 was also the year that we moved into a home. Uh, and the lady that we bought the home from, she had a siding when she was a kid in a place called Hughes Springs, Texas. And uh, they called them the the hobos that lived across the street. Okay. And she woke one up when she was playing, I think, with her brother one, one day after school. It just was sleeping under a bush and woke up and scared her off. Whoa. And so Whoa, like, we've... What? Yeah, yeah, we've had maybe 15 to 20 family friends with their own wow. stories of, of so sightings and everything. What you're telling me is Rue needs to pack up a bag, grab her tickets, get Darnell, because he was hunting Bigfoot in New York when he was a kid, and we need to go down and check this <laughs> yeah, out. Yeah, my, my husband <laughs> is obsessed with Bigfoot, and he's going to lose he's his like, ever-loving what? mind when I tell him <laughs> these stories. Because he is so fascinated by Bigfoots. And it's funny. So he's in the military. That's why we're in Germany. And he was stationed down in Texas. I'm going to tell him. He was yeah. like 10 minutes away from Bigfoot. He could have solved yeah, all Yeah, but he's hunting mysteries. in New York as a kid. Come on. Like, he was there. He was there. I know. It was happening. Yeah, he was, he was convinced <laughs> that Bigfoot lived in his tiny Manhattan apartment when he was a kid. And it scared the pants off of him. So, I, yeah, that's, oh my gosh, those, the tree peeking is, just even that phrase Yeah, gets I'll never me. tell anyone that that's exactly what happened. But you saw something. I've just kind of deduced that that's what other people have yeah. reported. Also, a few weeks after this happened, my, my, someone was retiring, I guess, that my mom was working with, and everyone was together, all of her coworkers were at this party. And it was around a campfire, and this lady, like, pulls me aside, and she's like, I want you to take a look at what they look like. And she talked about going around on her horse with a digital camera and, and sometimes mm-hmm. just walking around the property. But she said they're comfortable enough with me where I, I take these photos. They get a little bit oh, close wow. and I take these photos. And uh, I was like, oh, man, this is so cool. Yeah. 12 years old. I had my own computer. I was like, I'm going to take these home. She gave me a big uh-huh. stack of CDs with all these digital photos on them. And I said, I'm going to take these home and I'm going to solve everything. I thought I had like yep. cracked some code. Because all the TV shows says we can't, like, they say we, we have no evidence. And you're like, I have evidence. Look at the stack CDs. Yeah, and I was like, we are going to bring in some yeah. military operation <laughs> around, drop in the, like, Navy SEALs through their helicopters, and we are going to capture one of these things and prove that it's real. Um, and school had started by then. 
I know specifically the time period this was. I think it was August that we had gone out with her. And I know it was because it was still mm-hmm. summer and school had not started yet. And it was September or October that she had given me these CDs. And I, I knew that because for some reason I, I just associated that time with uh, the, the first Obama campaign. Okay. When okay. that was heating up. And for some reason in my mind, I'm like, that is exactly when this happened because I knew I was seeing his speeches on TV. That's your, that's your uh, mental time yeah. code. Mm-hmm. And I had this, like, uh, pull-out bunk bed. I still remember exactly where I was in my room when I was looking at these photos. I know exactly the angle I was sitting at. I had this old blue Acer laptop, put these CDs into it, and I go through, like, two or three. Didn't see anything. Go to another one. Didn't see anything. Go through like a uh, one more and it was like the fifth or sixth photo I get to and I'm like man like this these are just bushes there's nothing here and then I started like zooming in a little bit I'm like these are terrible photos she lied and everything I was just like man what is this um it's you know a couple of them are blurry and then I finally get to this really good nice crisp image but I can't see anything and it's just if you were like 15 feet away from a bush and you just took a photo and that's it you just like Go up a point and shoot, take a photo. Didn't see anything. And I just happened to zoom in around this. And in the top right corner, then I see about a third of a face. And it like burned itself. What did it look like? It that's that's like one of the big moments in, in my life. Yeah. I, I would say that's the only moment in my life where I've just been utterly freaked out. I've been in haunted houses. I've like had things like fall off the wall, heard things, we've gotten things on photos, but I've never been freaked out like then. Do you still have the photo? No. Uh. I uh, I did not look through the rest of the photos, actually. I was too scared, and I gave her back the really? photos. Um, so what it was was something peeking its face mm-hmm. through this bush, and it was like, you know how like sumo wrestlers or like linebackers like will- Like hunched down and- yeah, hunched down with their hands on their knees. That's what was going on. But the the leaves covered this part of the face, and you only saw up here. And like a Phantom of the Opera type mask? Uh-huh. Exactly oh, like yeah. that. And and I didn't see what it, I didn't know what it was at first. To me, it looked okay. like it was a tiger standing up. And I'll say it looked like a tiger standing up. Because when you zoom in, you can see a black ring, uh-huh. almost like it's wearing... Uh, like some sort of makeup around the eyes. You can see a black ring around the eye and you can see uh, the the it, kind of where the eyes would be. Um, it, but the, the closest thing I've ever seen to it is the Jack Link Sasquatch, but it gets a lot of things wrong. Oh. <laughs> okay. um, n- the no- number one thing it gets right is like the ridges on the forehead. But what it was like in this was like a skeleton with the skin like pulled very tightly. Whoa. Against the frame of the skeleton, like no body fat on the face. Okay. Really wide mouth. You couldn't tell where the nose was. It was all brownish. Um, so it was like a skeleton with brown skin, and it, the eyes were so sunken that you couldn't tell where they were. Oh, man. And in one of those first five photos, I started looking back, and I said, oh, wait, these things are behind the bushes. Hmm. And I saw another one that was very, it was not anywhere near as defined as that first one. Mm-hmm. But you could also see another eye, and it was like halfway behind a tree. And I said, this also looks like a tiger standing up. I can't describe to you why exactly it looks like a tiger. You know, tigers have the nose mm-hmm. that kind of comes forward a little bit. Yeah, kind of like a smaller snout. That's kind of what it was like. 
but this one looked exceptionally like a tiger because I would also say that it it didn't look what I thought Sasquatch looked like. I was thinking like oh, it's like a gorilla humanist thing. I was like this. Right, you're describing it more feline right. than like an ape. This is like a cat. It was like an ape feline thing. Huh. Um, but no, no, not a lot of hair on the face. Okay. You couldn't even tell where the hair was. Uh, I just saw this weird face in the bushes, but it was clear as day. And I did all this math a couple years ago where I tried to triangulate how far away she was, mm-hmm. estimate where it was in the photo. And then I did all these calculations. And I was like, if this thing was standing up, it would probably be between, I think, seven feet, four inches and seven feet, eight inches. Whoa. Okay. Because it was That's above, it was above the midline. You could tell the body position was leaning forward. Right. Cause you said it was kind of in that like sumo crunch. Mm-hmm. And it was above, okay. the, it was well above the horizon toward the top of the photo. Wow. And I was assuming that she was probably standing up and just taking a photo near her chest. And, right. and I was doing all these calculations. I was like, okay, if I'm about six feet and if I take it at my chest, this is how high it is. If someone who's probably like five feet, four yeah. inches took it, this is where it would be. Yeah. Wow. And I, I did all these crazy calculations and I was like, just to make sure, let me make sure this is not someone standing mm-hmm. behind this in a Halloween costume. But the other one, I don't know if you've ever heard this before about Sasquatch, but it's something I believe now. Okay. Hit us. The pupil that I saw in the photo, uh-huh. it was an eye of something. Was it the eye of the tiger? <laughs> That's what I thought it yeah. was. I was like, this this is a big cat. And I thought that because the pupil, uh-huh. you could see it was obviously a, a vertical slit. Interesting. It was not a round pupil. It was a vertical slit. Um, and so I was, like, I've been to, I've talked to a lot of people. That have had sightings. Yeah. I've talked to, I've met Bob Gimlin. I've met, you know, all the big hosts of the the Sasquatch um, shows and everything. And every time I meet one of them, I'm like, please tell me someone else has told you that about the vertical slits, <laughs> the, the pupils. And uh, I did some research and it's mainly like crocodilians and domesticated cats that have that. And it's because when you hunt at night, you need a way to yeah. um, really limit the, the light during the day and if if these reports about these things being nocturnal are true then if it was during the day then they wouldn't need a way to constrict their pupils oh yeah okay and so i was like okay this this is a night hunter of some sort yeah either this is a domesticated cat and this photo is wildly out of proportion yeah or you know this is complete hoax and this woman like completely (laughs) did me in at 12 years old and I, I, I don't know why anyone would do that that just seems mean honestly right seriously I, unless she's like oh i'm gonna give him a thrill and then I, it went too far yeah that happened um around that time i was like oh, yeah i want to go to college for primatology mm-hmm. because i'm so convinced of these things now that i know by the time i graduate in 10 years or whatever they'll be proven and i'll wow. be like on the front lines of studying these things oh you're that convinced about it i was that convinced i mean about that's it. pretty sure i was like i need to do this and then that's the time the finding bigfoot show came out uh-huh. a little bit after that like when i was in high school and i was like oh, this is really hokey and like cheesy and i was like no one takes this seriously and so i lost interest in it for a long time and i still have those stories i don't know if i'll ever gain interest in mm-hmm. it to where i'm like yeah i need to go out and try to solve something I'm just satisfied knowing that there's probably something out there that I have no clue how to explain. Um, but that did happen. Later, I would find out that my dad's 
I think his best man at his wedding and his high school best friend um, would get heavily involved in the Sasquatch world. And he would end up founding uh, one of the biggest research societies in the South. And he had his own show, I think, on Destination America for uh, the longest time. I know your parents know all these cool people, man. And my dad had no clue. Your parents just must go to cool dinner parties. (laughs) I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, my dad had no clue, but his friend had had a sighting when he was young. And I think one looked through a bathroom window at him. Oh. Really young. Oh, kind of violating some privacy there. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that happened. And then, yeah, I, I called him one day and I said, hey, I'm the son of, of one of your old best friends. Yeah. I had like a two-hour phone call with him. And I was just like, tell me everything you know. <laughs> and he was telling me all these stories. And I said, have you ever done anything in Maydell, Texas? Mm-hmm. Um, that was where those photos were taken and that was the property that we went to. And he says, oh yeah, we went to a, a property owned by a woman named, and he gives her exact name. No way. And that, that was the point I was like, okay, yeah, this stuff really happened. Like I went 10 <laughs> years like drowning it out, but that stuff really happened. And he's like, yeah, five, six years ago, whatever. We tried to go out there. Wow. And He's like, yeah, there's like a lot of activity at that place. And so there's no reason that these people would have known each other through your family, right? Like they're no, completely separate. No, it, oh, wow. That's just, so wild. It came full circle. She ended up contacting them trying to get out there. Um, I don't know if she was like, because his entire philosophy is that he needs to kill one. I don't like that. Hmm. That's the only way that it will be proven. Okay. And so well. he, he has like a hunting organization where they're like, yeah, we need to kill one of these things. So it can finally be proven because even if you have all this DNA, someone will be able to say, oh, it's, you know, there's something bad about the study yeah. you did on the DNA or, you know, this hair doesn't have any match. Well, obviously not if it's a, a, a new right. species, but that was a big part of my life. And that was also what got me interested in, in cameras okay. partially because I was like, I kind of want to go out in the woods and try to take photos of yeah. like she did. And so I would just like go in the backyard I was like, if there's a Bigfoot here, I might just start taking photos of the bushes and they'll be in one. The only thing I, I'm able to capture is squirrels and raccoons, so he's <laughs> kind of tops there. <laughs> he didn't even tell you one of the best parts, though. What? He told me that the lady um, had told him that they, like, walk up to her house and leave things on the porch and stuff. Excuse me? What? Yeah. What? <laughs> mm-hmm. Gifting? Yeah, they, uh... They communicate with their hands a lot, and they hunt on all fours. That's what she would describe. And she said she gave names to all of them, and then she she said they all look different. She said it was a family of four living on her property. And, uh, like, a lot of things... I've gotten really into the podcast called Sasquatch Chronicles, where people report things. Yeah. And it was years later. I just kind of got into it on accident. And one of the first episodes I listened to happened in Palestine, Texas, which is like 30 minutes... Actually, it's like 20 to 30 minutes from where I had that uh, stuff happen in Maydell. It's a long highway that connects Maydell from Palestine. And in between, it's just nothing but hunting leases. And there was this dude on there that said in the early 90s, I think, he was hunting with his dad in Palestine. And one of these things he saw um, pop its head out through a bush as it was leaning over. And I was in the car at the time and I freaked out. And my mom was like, what are you doing? And I said, "That's that's what it was doing in the photos that that lady gave to me. And that's when it all came back. I had, wow. I had not talked to anyone about that for like 10 years. 
until I just listened to that episode and heard the exact same thing described in the exact same area. And I was like, what if it was the same one? So what what presents would they leave for this woman? Uh, they would leave pebbles on her porch. Like pebbles and oh. I, maybe bones. I don't know. Of small okay. animals. Um, I've heard a lot of things strangely left on people's properties near here. And a lot of stories from like Oklahoma of like snakes being tied together and left on people's porches. Oh, no, thank you. I'm not a fan of that one. <laughs> Let's not tie animals together. Yeah, I, I didn't even mention that. I've also tracked down a few stories here. Um, one of my mom's friends in high school, he had a grandfather in the 1930s that had a sighting. When he, he, he described it as finding two dead baby monkeys in the woods. Whoa. And one of them had had a head and part of the spine ripped out, like twisted off. I wonder if it was like a stillborn or something like that. Yeah, maybe. Hmm. My first thought was that it was a territorial kill. Oh, okay. Was that th- those were male. I, I have yeah. no clue. I don't know what these things are. I don't think it's the Gigantopithecus like everyone says. Yeah. I don't think it's Neanderthal. I think it's, uh, I have no clue. I think there are multiple types. What are your thoughts on the different geographical sightings? So we've got like reports of the Yeti out in like Asia. We've got obviously the Pacific Northwest is a huge zone for these guys to hang out, but also down in Texas. So what are your thoughts on the different, you know, the skunk ape versus the Sasquatch versus the Yeti versus... Uh, I don't know. Like you'd think that one of these would be proven by now. Right. Um, I don't know. I personally think that here they bury their dead. Okay. I think there's a lot more intelligence than people think. Yeah. Uh, like, I think there's language involved. Hmm. If you look up, like, things like the Sierra sounds, mm-hmm. um, I think there's a language involved. Um, don't have any explanation for what they are or what the genetic diversity is across yeah. the world. I think that, like, the Yowie and Australia and the Yeti and everything may be related. I don't know. A lot of people will come up with that excuse that, like, it's some sort of genetic memory and it was something that existed in the past and somewhere in our genes, we have that fear of another species like instilled in us, so we'll see it. I don't buy that at all. I think most likely what would be found in the next few years if something is found um, would probably be something like the Orang Pendek, uh, like in, in places like Sumatra. And there was uh, a species called Homo fluorescensis, known as the Hobbit, which existed until a few hmm. thousand That's years ago. That's going to be my favorite. Um, <laughs> like, like we know there was crossover between when humans were in that area and when when hobbits were in that area and there are still sightings to this day of these little ape people there's like Mm -hmm. little people in every culture but that was i i would definitely not be making that documentary today or i would not have somehow gotten into that tv series if i had not had those experiences and it was just from a very young age being told what if not necessarily saying those things yeah. like 100% convinced me that everything in the world is real. But I, I was conditioned from a very young age to think, yeah, some of these legends that people talk about, there may actually be some truth to it. And so when we got into this pirate mm-hmm. story, I was like, you know, there might be a little bit there that's at the bottom. Well, um, I may have Googled some pirate jokes for my repertoire. Um, since we have a pirate treasure hunter here. Oh, Okay. These are all terrible, but those are what make them my favorite. Here we go. How much did the pirate pay for his piercings? How much? How much? A buckaneer. <laughs> okay, that's, okay, that's right. something. I like it. <laughs> <laughs> How much did the pirate pay for his pagan hook? How much? How much? An arm and a leg. <laughs> 
Where can you find a pirate who's lost his wooden legs? Where? Right where you left him, obviously. All right, I got one more. <laughs> I don't know if I can handle too many more. Okay, all right, all right. How do pirates know that they're pirates? Oh. They think, therefore, they are. Wow. <laughs> I know, yeah. All right, and that brings us to the next thing to talk about. So I don't know if you listened to Pirate Party. I sent, when I found Christian, I sent him a message. And I'm like, hey, we have kind of this baby podcast. Would you be mm-hmm. interested in coming on? Here we covered a Sam Bellamy. Here's a little preview of what we did with that. Um, but my favorite pirate joke of all times, in case it didn't make it into that episode, is what's a pirate's favorite letter? R. Oh, no, we can't be the C. <laughs> I think I do remember that, actually. Yeah. That was pretty good. That might have been your best one. <laughs> That's my favorite. So I know it's kind of switching gears, but can you tell us more about what the actual experience of diving in the lake and looking for Lafitte's treasure was like? Hmm. Okay. So doing the diving at the lake, we we aren't expecting to bring up pirate treasure, obviously, um, but we always hope to bring up something that can help contextualize that history, whether we bring up pieces of old searches, um, maybe a piece of evidence that shows us that it could be based on yeah. something but you know stories can snowball it could have been a man placed a jar of coins next to the lake and then all of a sudden that ends up uh, gaining notoriety and then all of a sudden it's pirate treasure and, and things like that so we we really don't know what we're looking for well in the show and uh in in our own sonar scans we've kind of found anomalies that we've looked into and so it's really nasty diving, and there's three of us that have been diving. What's the visibility like? It is absolutely zero visibility. Okay. Uh, as soon as you go under, it turns light green, and then below about three feet, it starts turning brown. Wow. And then when you get below about 10 feet, it just gets pitch black. You have to be pretty brave to do that. Uh, Yeah. I honestly kind of forget what I'm doing sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> and there will be a few minutes that go by, and I'm just like digging, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm at the bottom of a lake. So how deep are you looking? Like, how deep are you when you're doing these these digs? The lake is no deeper than 15 feet. Okay, because you were saying it gets pitch black at 10 feet. So I was like, geez, how much pitch black are you having to get through? Right. Yeah, it's, it's nasty. And then the first time I ever went down, I was confused at how dark it was. Um, and I was not sure if I was upright on my knees or if I was face down with my mask in the mud it was that dark oh wow that's so disorienting I had the the feel in front of me just to make sure where I was and there's these things called sinker logs and it's around the the turn of the 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 century uh a lot of these sawmills would would cut these trees and they would sink logs into the bottom of these rivers in the south Mm -hmm. and the southeast and the idea was that if they're sunk at the bottom of this lake they retain a lot of nutrients much better Okay. And so they become much more valuable, and then you have to have a certain boat that comes up with chains to retrieve those. Well, that's probably the most valuable thing, and they're huge trees. We've got to deal with those, swim around them, and do all sorts of stuff. Yeah. Um, there are sinker logs where we work, and so it's just nasty. You try to find a nice spot in the mud, and then dig down to the mud, and then dig through the mud, then you hit clay. And then you start trying to dig through clay. And we've got metal detectors that we go down with and we find all these uh, hits and and try to dig those up. Some of it is sunk five plus feet beneath clay probably. So a a lot of the older history there will probably never be recovered. 
Mm-hmm. So do you have a way of dating that? Like if it's five feet under the clay, how old do you or how long do you approximate that it's sat there? It completely depends on weight. Okay. For example, some of the smaller things that we found have been at the top. Okay. But if it has any weight to it, it tends to sink. It'll right. sink. Um, one of my favorite stories down there. Do you know what an alligator gar is? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Not so, a fan. We're from the Midwest. We we both know. Yep. We're aware. Cool. Um, so this lake has everything. One of my favorite things that I got to say on the show was talking about all the alligators and snakes in the lake uh-huh. and snapping turtles. And I just talked it up how dangerous everything was at the lake. And when we were shooting, we ended up getting away completely healthy. I think it was just one crew member got stung by a bee. And that was That's it. That's not that bad. Okay, not that bad. I have stuff in my in my producer bag for like bee stings. Yeah. Alligator bites, nope, not so much, you know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was just so happy we got away without any like moccasins right. biting someone. Yeah. Uh, when I was in the war room with the Laginas, they were shocked because I told them that a lot of times when moccasins bite, they like to chew when they envenomate. And so mm. when people go to the hospital, sometimes they'll have the snake still attached. That's the nope of the week. Damn. <laughs> Damn. Okay. Yeah. My, yeah. My dad teaches uh, wilderness first aid. Uh-huh. And so like I have heard all of his lessons and speeches on, on snakes and yeah. how to avoid those, but uh, more likely how to treat a bite. Uh, but there are all four types of venomous snakes in Texas found in the immediate area of Hendricks Lake. There's rattlesnakes, coral snakes, copperheads, and cottonmouths. Wow! So you guys really did get lucky. So we yeah. have we have three of the four here. Yeah, it's nasty, and then there's all sorts of aggressive water snakes. Ugh, I hate water snakes. Uh, they will bite underwater. Yep. I've been free diving, and I was young. I thought it was a toy snake. It was not. It was a moccasin, just oh, chilling shit. on the bottom. And oh. it just swam up past my face. Oh, so man, I've seen them underwater. They will bite underwater. Snapping turtles. Are we sure that's not where you got that birthmark from? <laughs> I hope not. Uh, we found probably 100 plus pounds snapping turtles in the lake. Yep. Wow. Um, I've never seen an alligator there, but it's presumed that they could potentially be mm. there anywhere with that kind of ecosystem. Yeah. You kind of assume that they're, if not in that body of water, then in the area and can easily be misplaced with storms, yeah. whatever. So I got to talk about that on the show, and it was just so funny with me kind of giving my dad's entire lesson on snakes to Maddie and talking about everything to look out for. How were working with the Lagina brothers? Oh, they're awesome. Uh, I think most would consider them like the two biggest treasure hunters in the world. Um, and just in the future, being able to tell that story when I finally write my tell-all book when I'm dying. I'll say that, yeah, I got to get advice from two of the biggest treasure hunters in the world and uh, got advice from, from Gary Drayton, who's like the world's top metal detectorist. And- He's my favorite on the show. Have you, Rue, you, you haven't seen it because... I haven't been um, able to find it over here, no. Reasons, okay. But he's he's like my hero in a okay. weird way. Like, you know, I, I like to build a fantasy family and like Josh Gates is like my big brother, okay. right? Like he's the guy we're going on bench with and hanging out with. I don't know. That's that's like my fantasy uncle that you just go okay. out. He's great. <laughs> He's so cool. He uh, <laughs> gave me some great advice. He let me hold real pirate treasure. Wow. Did you get to hold the, the emerald ring? Uh, I don't remember what all I held. He carries so much jewelry on him. How do you not remember? 
remember how, what all you held. He had a lot, it's and history. he was he was just handing me stuff. Wow, that's so cool. I guess he's found so much that he just travels with treasure and various. Pockets full of pirate treasure. <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay, man. I might have to like bump him up on my your like... fantasy family. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I like to I I pretend I want to get a drink with Julie Andrews, yeah. Andrews and all that. Yeah, like he's one of those I definitely hang out with. <laughs> Okay, so he's just handing you all this pirate treasure. He was handing me all that stuff. Um, I guess I liked the most about the show was talking um, offset with with all the crew and everything. A lot of those guys had done shows at at Skinwalker Ranch. They've done UFO shows. And they were telling me, like, everything they've caught outside the show, everything that didn't make the show. Wow. Wow. And I was like, oh, man, this is so cool. Yeah. I gotta ask, talking to these guys, are a lot of them believers now? Yeah, yeah. A lot of them may not have been believers before. Um, a lot of them have also done treasure shows, and they've been involved with entire seasons of that. And a lot of them were just trash-talking other treasure shows where they were like, yeah. yeah. There's a healthy camaraderie. Yeah, and they're like, I've, I've followed these treasure hunters for an entire season, and let me tell you, like, it's completely pointless. There's nothing there. Yeah. But Aww. there's with don't break my heart with the Oak Island world. Everyone was kind of like maybe the season is going to be the season that something happened. Everyone believes that there's something going to be pulled up mm-hmm. on Oak Island. Okay, let me get back to the Gar story. I never finished that. Um, so my most recent dive, it was absolutely freezing. It was like forty something degrees on the bottom. That's just you guys shut up. That is exactly it's lower than that outside oh, my house right now. There's, it's 30 degrees and we've had snow all day, but it's I'm not diving in pitch black and it's 40 degrees. Those are like my three least favorite things. Yeah. You're right. It's 34 today. So um, so I was down with another diver and uh, kind of the way that we find stuff is just by feeling around and we can't see anything. I've run, I kind of feel around with my knuckles just in case there's a snapping turtle. Oh, and if you just, if you punch a turtle. Like okay. just keep your hands like this and you just kind of punch. You know, I've always got my fist ready in case I need to punch something. All right, so you're punching your way through. Yeah, yeah, I've got these really thick gloves, and okay. sometimes I'll run into the other diver. That's normal. We we've got like a system in place to where uh, we we know how to communicate underwater, which is generally grab the other person <laughs> until they finally figure <laughs> out what's going on. So if I need him to help me dig somewhere, I will grab his arm. Okay, so it's like a body part thing, like. Does it look, okay, so if you need dig, do you grab his hand? But if there's danger, you like hit his shoulder or like, is this signal worked out like that? Like if, if no, a snapping no. turtle was coming, would I just like hit Rue in the face? No. No? Okay. We can't, we can't do anything. He can, he's in constant communication with Topside mm-hmm. so the boat can communicate with him. Uh-huh. Okay. I don't, I, I never had that luxury. So. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I uh, never had that luxury. So if, <laughs> if he needs to communicate with me, we uh, just grab arms, whatever. And so you find the other person's hand, and like if he needs to show some something to me, he will grab my hand, push okay. it, and then make me feel around until I understand. Oh, there's something right here. He wants me to dig it out. Yeah. Um, gotcha. Well, occasionally we've run into each other. We've run into yeah. each other face to face. We've kicked each other. You know, nasty conditions. It happens. Um, no matter how advanced or experienced you are, you're just going to Oops. run into another person and. Pitch black conditions, that's just how it is. Well, there was one case where, and I'll I'll go back a little bit. Sometimes things will bump your tank, and I could never figure out what they were until I finally realized these are gar, and pretty big alligator gar. Mm -hmm. And I think they're just investigating what's going on over there, and I don't think they can see either. 
So they're probably just Whoa. enjoying their day, swimming along, and then boom, oh, that's not fun. Yeah, they'll bump right yeah. into your tank. So, so sorry, one second. For anyone who's not from the areas that we're from, can you just describe what alligator gar are like so that everyone can get this horrifying vision in their mind like we have? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a fish with a head kind of like an alligator. And they do get really, really big. Fun fact, Hendrix mm-hmm. Lake was once home to a uh, lake monster story, and they called it the whale. And they actually caught it, and then they found out it was like an eight-foot-long alligator gar. Yeah. I don't know if there was enough documentation to officially make that the Texas record, but I think it would have been the Texas record if they had okay. better documentation of that, of the yeah. length and everything. Um, wow. But they're huge. There are stories of people in places like Caddo Lake or um, like in the Mississippi of them swimming up next to boats, mm-hmm. and they're the same length as a boat. So we know that they get huge. Jeez. People tried to exterminate them in the south at, at one point, um, but they're really docile. They They look prehistoric and nasty. If you just Google giant alligator gar, you'll probably see one hanging off of a hook that's like six or seven feet long, just huge. And uh, yeah, I'm not not scared of them, primarily because in that one episode of River Monsters, when he was talking about uh, alligator gar, Uh he went to this place called Athens Fisheries, which is in East Texas, and he ended up swimming with them. And he's like, yeah, these things don't mind at all. Hmm. And so I was like, oh, yeah, Jeremy Wade did it. (laughs) There you go. So why can't I? No big deal. What would Jeremy <laughs> Wade do? So these things are super, super docile. And one day I was diving, trying to dig something out. And I was resting on my knees, floating on one of the logs. And the the way that we were operating, there was a PVC pipe. And the divers would start on opposite ends and then slowly travel down the pipe. And when they had searched everything along the pipe on their side, they would shake their end of the PVC pipe, and then they would move it down a few inches. So you're doing this grid pattern. Yeah, I'd, I'd finished my part, my side, and I was waiting for the other diver to get there, waiting to feel the end of this PVC pipe shake so I can move it down and turn around. And I was facing the shore, and all of a sudden, something bumps my right shoulder. Mm-hmm. And my immediate thought, since there was a lot of force behind it, was, oh my goodness, the other diver is right here. He's completely like away from where he's supposed to be. He's supposed to be on the other end of the pipe. And for yeah. some reason, I thought, oh, his hip just hit me. He's sw- he's trying to swim by. Couldn't see him. But my immediate thought was to, like, lock his leg uh-huh. inside of my arm. So I do this hug motion where I go under with this arm and over with this one and point my yeah. face, like, up. Because, I'm like, I'm going to get kicked in the face. I'm going to lose my mask. <laughs> it's pitch black. I'm not going to find my mask, which I really like, in the bottom of this leg. So I do not want to lose it. I like how you, your biggest concern is losing the mask, not oh, I I won't be able to breathe. Yeah, no, no, I I don't I don't worry about breathing. Are you free diving? No, I, I was I was on scuba. Yeah, I, oh. I just didn't want to get okay. in the face. That was my immediate thought was mm-hmm. that there's going to be a fin following what I thought was his hip hitting my shoulder. I thought he was just neutral buoyancy swimming by, and I get bumped because that's happened before. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, we'll run into each other. Well, my first instinct was to grab his leg, one to let him know I'm there. And two, to mm-hmm. prevent that movement from hitting me in the face, knocking out my reg, knocking out my mask, whatever. And I locked my arms around this thigh, or what I thought was his thigh. And it was about the, it was big around, like really thick. I had thick wetsuit on, thick gloves uh. on. So I couldn't feel it. But I hug this leg, what I thought was like a really big leg. And I'm like, he's not moving. And so for a couple of seconds, this thing is not moving. And then very gently and slowly... It slithers out. Oh, that's... <laughs> I should not move that way. <laughs> and, oh, 
if you're slithering yeah. your thighs, that's Ooh. a whole different. Yeah, I come to this realization that I had accidentally hugged maybe the first person ever. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's history. <laughs> the first person ever to accidentally hug a massive, probably six foot or more, maybe alligator guard that was just chilling right there. <laughs> Mind his own business, and all of a sudden he's like, "This is weird, but I kind of like it." All right. <laughs> I want to know what it was like at the Gar Bar later. Like, did he just go up to his homies, like, <laughs> the Gar Bar? "You are not gonna believe what happened to me today." <laughs> I'm just swimming along, <laughs> and this guy hugs me out of nowhere. Yeah, I don't know. We just shared this moment for about two seconds. Where he was just, you know, fine right there. You know, they didn't freak out. They don't have any natural predators in the lake. So I'm sure they aren't freaked out when something yeah, else grabs them. probably a, a little awkward for it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, man, this weird tree thing just grabbed me. And yeah, and that same day, apparently we we um, spooked a snake out. I'm assuming it was a moccasin, maybe. I don't know. Maybe it was just a water snake. And then the next day we go out there to dive. Everyone says, oh, yeah, you remember that snake from last time uh, that, that came up when you were under? I said, no, I'm the only one that did not see that. And they said, oh, mm -hmm. maybe you were the one under. And so <laughs> I never told them about the alligator guard. They never told me about the snake that was down there that I had spooked to the surface. So is that the strangest diving encounter you've had? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely. Right. I think the next pirate that I choose would have uh, treasure on a really nice reef with good visibility somewhere okay. in the Caribbean. Okay. That sounds wonderful. So you're done with the, the lake muck after this one? I think so. I don't know. Okay. Once you once you grab a fish that's your size without knowing it, you're like, what is <laughs> what is there that I'm not seeing? Yeah. Yeah. That's got to be you frustrating. Know, so what is next for you? What's next for you with Sunken Silver? What's next for you in general? And do you have an idea of what pirate you'd like to pursue next? Should you uh, find Lafitte's treasure or come to an end with that search? Well, I um, am currently in the process of finishing Sunken Silver. It follows about, I'd say about 10 to 12 different characters and their varying degrees of association with this lake. And so it won't be perfect by any means. Um, but I'm just trying to tell the story of the lake and, and the irony of people searching for treasure and my experience putting myself in the shoes of past searchers and actually giving it an attempt myself. Um, and I'm hoping to completely independently produce that. It's always been on my bucket list to make a film. And recently I've been doing this thing where if any opportunity pops up that's on my bucket list, then I kind of have to say yes to it. Nice. Um, just because you never know okay, when you get another good. opportunity to do so. So we're filming our last like um, pickup interviews right now, and we've got a couple more sequences to film down on the coast. Um, but after, I would be very, very interested in pitching a series um, completely focused on solving what happens to Lafitte after he lo after he uh, leaves Galveston Island. Um, there's the the journal, which no one knows if it's real or not. It's very controversial that says he may have lived out the rest of his life under an assumed identity and just lived life as a normal American. There are stories of him getting killed in combat, also stories of him getting sick um, with the potential of uh, a body that could potentially be exhumed. Um, 
there's just a lot of info out there that I've found out that is right there, like on the cusp of either being proven or disproven. Uh, but there's a lot there for a series. And so I've been kind of trying to put a pitch together while finishing my documentary on a show that, that could follow this yeah. pirate, follow all the ghost stories, follow everything about him, and try to show uh, that there's a lot out there historically that could be found. Um, we've got reports of shipwrecks, everything that could be looked into, and someone just needs to put the resources together to to look into it. There's a lot of legal issues with looking for shipwrecks in Texas, but elsewhere there's also stories and connections he has. There are records in Havana, London, um, in Mexico City uh, that, that could be used to show other ships that he took or other ships that he potentially wrecked. But I, I kind of like being in TV. I was exposed very quickly. That was my first appearance in front of like 2 million people. So I didn't get to work my way up. Yeah, always trial by fire with TV, I'm afraid. But it was it was fun. I, I really liked doing it. Um, it was really nice not having to do all the work. I just got to talk about what, I, what I'm nerdy about. If you end up back on Beyond Oak Island or on Oak Island in general, will you please tell the metal detective guy he's my favorite? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's wonderful. <laughs> he, uh... Tell him I get thrilled every time he comes on the screen. I'm like a little child. Like, oh, what's he got in his top Aww. pocket now? Because that's a top pocket. He says that's a top pocket find when he has uh-huh. a good thing. I know. People I People don't love understand it. that everything that Gary Drayton says is not caught on camera. He's the funniest person I've ever met. Okay, awesome. He uh, like every every ten oh, seconds it's yeah. a pun, and he sounds like my kind of people. <laughs> I I've got stories of getting like COVID tested with him, <laughs> and I'm just like, man, this tell-all book is going to be crazy with Gary Drayton and Laginas and all these side conversations. If you can't find Lafitte's treasure, or if you've come to an end with that chapter of your life, you mentioned that maybe the next pirate that you pursue will be a Caribbean one. Do you have anybody in mind? Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. I've, I don't want to... I've always been careful not to brand myself too much with Lafitte or too much with piracy. I think just at the very basis of everything, I like to investigate and tell stories through investigating. Okay. Um, and paranormal, everything fits in with that. But actually, scratch the Caribbean idea... I think okay. I would like to pursue uh, one of the pirates that was mentioned in the show, Olivier Levasseur. Um, I would, okay. uh, again, there's a lot of mystery and doubt over exactly how much they had. I think he rivaled Sam Bellamy with, with how much he brought in. There was, for example, there was one ship, a uh, Portuguese ship, that was taken uh, in the kind of the Reunion Island, Madagascar area, uh, that was, I think he got about $400 million dollars of wealth from that ship and uh it was full of religious artifacts that were going i believe to india to to fund all these churches and it was called i think it was nostra senora de cabo it was a portuguese ship and uh, the story goes they were hit by a, a big storm and they had to dump all their cannons to avoid sinking oh, man. and then all of a sudden they were defenseless and the next morning this pirate shows up and he just walks on no fight at all takes everything and leaves and Yo, best day ever for that pirate. He's like, he lucked out. Right? Like, you're not even going to try? Yeah, he gets nearly like half a billion dollars in, in wealth from that one ship. Wait, is that, I got to ask, the, um, then money or now money? Then money or now money, yeah, basically. Right? Yeah, n- now, now. Okay. Um, and, and he's associated with, with the Seychelles. That was kind of where he was based, and there have been a lot of searches there uh, that 
people have believed he may have left something. If there is a pirate in history mm-hmm. that did stockpile something and leave it somewhere, it was him. And okay. somewhere on the eastern coast of Africa. But there's a lot out there. I mean, one of my favorite facts to tell people is that about 10% of all Spanish colonial wealth is unaccounted for. Wow. And the majority of that was lost in shipwrecks. It may not always be stolen by pirates yes. and and taken we're talking merchant ships sinking yeah Mm -hmm. hurricanes would knock out you know so much of of spanish ships they would just kind of assume that you know 10 percent of their ships would go missing um, be attacked by pirates sink somewhere and so there's so much out there that could be found it's it's somewhere under feet of sand sometimes washing up every time a hurricane or storm will hit it will churn something up and so if you guys have any more developments that pop up or if you make another appearance on Beyond Oak Island or anything, would you consider coming back and talking to us again about whatever you may find? Yeah, I'll, I'll talk about anything. I think you know that I have some sort of personal story or family story that relates to like every single thing you've covered so far. <laughs> so if you need a guest on any episode, I'm At good. this point, I feel like I need to hit you up and be like, hey, I'm covering this random cryptid that no one's ever heard about. What you got? Do you have a personal story about like this lady who took you <laughs> into the woods in her shotgun-laden truck bed and showed you this thing? Yeah, but every time I've talked to Christian over the past couple weeks, I, I'll be watching something and like a ghost ship will come up and I'll be like, how do you feel about ghost ships? And he'll fire back that he has a story almost for everything. It's just been insane. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Okay. Um, so I would probably say I'm most active on Instagram uh, and there's no really theme to what I post or anything. Sometimes it's just, I used to be really involved in travel photography and I used to tour as a photographer, um, like in the music industry. So it, it bounces all over the place. I've been kind of promoting the documentary through that everywhere and all the social media, everything. I'm at Christian B. Roper and, uh, christianbroper.com you can find a little bit of information about the film and everything and also we do have a website for the film uh sunkensilver.com and if you want to find us you can find us at supposedlypod.com um as always if you have any stories or anything that you'd like for us to cover we would love to hear it you can hit us up there or you can find us at uh, supposedlypod at gmail.com to drop us a line and we're also on facebook instagram and twitter at supposedlypod Christian, thank you so much for coming out. Yeah, thank you. All right. Well, join us next time on Supposedly. Supposedly.